Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hopefully. Hello? There's Larry. Okay, give me a couple seconds yeah. here. I got to grab Dan Perkins here, uh, my co-host, and uh, get him in here. Uh, by the way, we, we, we've got Larry Tracy with us. He is fantastic. I love Larry. And, uh, we, uh, are throwing a little bit of an audible today <laughs> because our scheduled guest wasn't anywhere to be found. And Larry is always a good guy to talk to about different things. And so we're going to call Dan and Don, and I believe we've got Don. Don, can you hear me, my friend? Y- yes, but, uh. Uh, Dan and I were on another one. You got to call Dan again. Now. Okay, no problem. I will. I will call. <laughs> right. I will call Dan uh, as as we. Uh, uh, Dan, are you on? I, I am. I am dialing him up uh, right now and uh, making technology work here. I sometimes just wish we could go back to the typewriter, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people that say that they, they don't want to go back to the typewriter. So it, it's, 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 it's much easier to, uh, to, to do this. So we are, we are going to call Dan here, uh, the great Dan Perkins, uh, by the way, Dan Perkins guru. If you want to get, uh, his books and, uh, everything and Dan, are you there? My friend. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I've got our guest. Uh, Larry Tracy is with us. And Larry spoke with Don a few weeks ago on Talk America Live. And I wanted to get Larry in today. Um, he is going to fill in for our for our other guest because, for whatever reason, I, I could not get a hold of them. And Larry has an amazing book. And Larry also talk, can talk current events with us and everything else. Um, Larry, let's talk about your book, Bring Home the Bacon. Tell me and Dan and Don about Bring Home the Bacon. Well, it's actually an, um, an e-book and paperback. The, the paperback has a little bit more in it, especially uh, an article on how to, how to use the, I know you'd be laughing at this, the Philly cheesesteak as a model for a winning presentation. And the keys between the two is, as anybody from the Philly area knows, it's the, uh, the bottom roll and the top roll are what really makes it. And in a good winning presentation, you have to have a terrific way to open up to get the audience's attention and a great way to close. So that's my analogy. But the rest of the book is primarily how to use your speaking skills to increase your leadership ability. Uh, some people are born natural leaders, but the rest of us have to do it with the spoken word. And I've uh, lined uh, 21 chapters in there on how to plan how to practice, and how to uh, present. And a lot of it comes from my, my military background because I'm a retired Army colonel, and I did a lot more more talking and speaking than I did shooting. And I was the senior briefer to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then later on was detailed uh, by the White House of the State Department to speak around the country on controversial issues. So for survival, I developed that system, and it worked for me. It worked for people in my workshops, and I think it'll work for the people who read the book. And they'll be better speakers, and if they're better speakers, they're going to be more successful. Could not agree with you more uh, on that. Uh, your book is terrific. I've read it, by the way. So, uh, um, uh, well, this going to sound like mutual admiration, Don. I read your book, and I think the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll send you the five dollars. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but 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 the the point I I, I liked about it is that uh, you organized uh, uh, you, you encourage people to organize their thoughts, which I think is so important. And I, um, I my only regret in life is I didn't have a Jesuit education because they really teach you how to uh, organize your thought. But I thought that's you, right. You learn a lot from them. Uh, I found out recently that, uh, that the Jesuits were actually b- banned from Sweden until quite le- uh, recently. I hadn't realized that. 
but uh, a, a stray fact, which means nothing. But what what I w want, would like to ask you a question is uh, uh, for our audience: What are you think are the three key components to to creating a um, a, a great leadership style? Well, I think the it's an interesting thing that the way threes come up so often in our in our thinking. It goes back to Pythagoras who said three was the perfect number. And when you say things in threes, people when you say I'm gonna I've got three points to make, people say fine, I can handle that. If you say four or five, they're figuring uh oh too much. And uh that's one of the things that I learned not only from the Jesuits but in the army as well. And uh that's why I divided the book into those three points of how to plan ahead of time, how to then practice and then present and what it is, it's, it's systematic, but it's also systemic because how you plan determines how you're going to practice and naturally how you practice is going to determine how you present. And that's why the, the key element of the practicing part, again, is something I bring from the military that has a rather macabre name of the, the murder board, but it's very similar to what pilots have to do with flight simulators. And we're hearing a lot now about flight simulators and how a lot of airlines spend more, they spend more time training their pilots on the ground on a flight simulator than they do up spending a lot of money and messing up the environment with uh, burning fuel. So that's the same principle when you're doing, make, uh, you go through a practice that is so realistic that when you get in to do the real thing, it's, it's something that you figure, hey, I've done this already before. I've, I've, I've been to this movie before. And I think that's really the key of organizing organizing your information so that you can deliver it in such a way that the people who get that information can understand it and see how your solution can solve their problem. Yeah, um, uh, true, but uh, I'll, I'll ask one question and turn it over to Dan. But, you know, IBM, in their teaching of its salespeople years ago, used to say, you sandwich, uh, they called it the sandwich. You said something good. And then if you had to say something bad, you made it second, and then you uh, coded it w with a third thing, which was good. And they felt that that would be a more effective way of uh, uh, teaching. What do you say to that? Well, I, I agree with that. I've, I've met people from that company, and they've told me how the training, and I, I, I found that a very, very uh, compatible system with my own uh, to do it that way. But I, I, I think it is so important that you, you're able to reach and find out what, what the problem is of your customer or of your client and how can you intersect your objective with, with their problem so that you solve it and that they walk away saying, my, my information is now a lot more than I had before I listened to this person. Uh, that, I think, is really the key to communication. And one of the, as you know, Don, one of the real problems that people have is that speaking in front of a group is one of the number one fears in the United States. And I think it's because they just don't know how to get ready for it. It's the fear of the unknown, uh, afraid that they won't be able to answer questions. And my solution is when you don't know the answer to the question, you say, I don't know, but I'll get that for you. And don't try to fake them out in any way. And then make sure you get that information and get it to them in some way. So um, I, um, I've done thousands of presentations in my life to Groups as little as ten to five thousand, and and uh, the the connection between the audience and the speaker is incredibly important. And um, I think that sometimes speakers have so much to say that they feel like they have to get through their material, and they wait and they don't wait to see how the audience is reacting to what they're saying, and then reacting. Now that's to absolutely very very true. It's one of the one of the uh, differences in, of giving a presentation and say writing a memo, and the advantage of it is you can you can read the audience the way a quarterback reads the defense, and you can see whether your point is getting across or whether you're leaving them in the dark, and then you can change. But when you're writing a document, you don't know how that audience is going to take the information, and so I I, I think the uh, oral presentation to an audience has to take in how the audience is getting it, how you're seeing it, and see whether you're getting across to them. And not try to not try to put everything in. You've got to reduce it. I, again, I go back to three. Three points, I think, is all you should have in a presentation. 
Well, you know, I used to tell people when I was training people to be salespeople for Wall Street, I used to say that that you you first and foremost to be an effective communicator, you have to be a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yes, indeed. You have to be able to. Am I reading your book, even though I didn't read your book? Yeah, well, um, I think being a storyteller is so so important because we're as a as a culture we we like to sort of sit around the campfire and have information transmitted to us that way, not lectured. Yeah, and I I found another piece that that, that really worked well for me is that um, I used to I used to use this example. I used to say. Who sells more watches, Rolex or Timex? And people <laughs> always say it would be Timex. And I said, why? Because people just wanted to know what time it was. If you bought a Rolex watch, did it really tell that much better time than a, than a Timex? You wanted that Rolex watch for something totally different than other than just telling time. And I say that it's important to help understand that people buy products and services for the benefits they produce to them, as opposed to how something's constructed. Now that that's that's I'll, I'll steal that idea. I like that. It, <laughs> it's a variation of the old thing that people buy drills not for drills, but to get holes in the wall. Right, right. It's the same same principle. So that the things that we do in our lives many times have multiple benefits to ourselves, and if we're speaking the more benefits that we can demonstrate to an audience or a group of students or whoever, uh, what is yep. what it's going to do for them, the more effective communicator we're going to be. No, I, I agree completely with that. The, the idea that people are looking for benefits. And when I train companies that are doing um, oral presentations for government contracts, what I constantly say is you've got to look at it from the standpoint of how are you going to solve their problem and how are they going to be able to communicate properly uh, to the government and do it in the terms of what they are going to benefit, not the features of what your, uh, your product or your service is going to be, because that's how they're listening. Yeah, what is it going, what, what, am, what am I going to gain by buying your product or service? And, uh, we, we, especially, it's, it's become, I think, especially acute as we have developed personal communication devices in that we're, we're interested in what's the latest gadget uh, and how it's necessarily put together, 3G, 4G, 5G, or whatever, uh, as opposed to, uh, I, I find it amazing the number of people that own a smartphone and have no idea what other pieces of that particular technology can add to the quality of life they have because they 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 got to a certain point and then they stopped being interested in all the other things that it could do for them and they they don't yeah. understand the robustness of what it was they were buying and you know uh, an example of this would be when apple comes out with um, with a new iphone just go stand outside an Apple store and see the long lines that are there. That are people that are just waiting to get that newest technology. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still operating on an iPhone that I, I got four years ago. It, it does what I needed to do. I don't need to go and get another one. Well, I, I have to jump in here and say I have a, um, the equivalent uh, a, a phone, and I only use it to, uh, to make phone calls and to get phone calls. Still haven't gotten much further than that. Um, uh, I, I'd like to jump uh, in here and uh, uh, tell a joke, which, uh, uh, you know how you get the three ways you know you're getting uh, old? First one is you begin to forget things, and I forgot the other two. Well, that is fantastic. <laughs> but um, you, uh, th but I, I, I'd like to say, to me, uh, whenever I go before an audience, I always get excited because uh, to me, it's uh, it's a show, and uh, uh, when you go and you, you develop ways of, of establishing rapport with an audience, well, as you said earlier in another show when we were together, you had oftentimes had to go into audiences who were antagonistic, 
and I'm sure we've all been in in that point. But to me, there's no greater uh, uh, thrill than when you uh, get an audience that's saying, "Show me," and then you show show them in your in your presentation, and, the, and at the end they say, "By golly, he was right." Um, that to me is an exciting thing. You want to comment on that? Well, that Absolutely. In fact, in my, my experience, my last three years in the Army, when the White House uh, put me over to the State Department and I was speaking at college campuses around the country, I, I mentioned in one of the previous programs that what I would do uh, to uh, get that initial rapport would call the student who was organizing and invite he and a couple of his buddies out would have pizza and beer the night before. And they saw me as a human being. But the the idea of then being able to take these young students who had been, and I must say this, had been given a lot of incorrect information as to what we were doing in Latin America from their professors. And then I would have already researched what the professors had written so I could go and rebut them. And it was a feeling of great satisfaction when the kids would come up to me at the end or would write to me a letter and say, you know, I, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but now I, I see it. And it was, it, was, uh, it, it was just, I think it's what a teacher must really get when when he or she sees that they have taken young fertile minds and been able to put ideas in them that will make them better on it. And that, that was the great satisfaction that I had. A lot of people back in State Farm said, how do you like doing this thing? You're the guest of honor at a public hanging. And I said, no, I said, I've, I'm having more fun by doing this than anything I've ever done before. So it is a great, uh, great feeling uh, when you can get ideas across and people can accept them. One of the things that I've noticed in in uh, in sitting at large meetings is that um, many years ago I realized that if there are a series of speakers in a day, three, four, five, six speakers in a day, at some point in time during one of those early presentations, a, a transparent wall drops down between the speaker and the audience. What a and, great image that is. Yeah. Um, and so what I found where I, if I was working, uh, I, I did a presentation once in, in front of 3,000 brokers uh, on Wall Street. Uh, no more arrogant people. Well, maybe doctors, but generally no more arrogant people. And uh, you could tell that they, they, were, they were not reacting to the previous speakers. And so when I, uh, I, I always found it was important to understand before I opened my mouth, who was I speaking to? So that I could understand knowledge, background, whatever. And so what I found is that when I'm in a large group, and I've done this even in small groups, when I've done some business consulting, I, I take a microphone and I go out into the audience and I talk to people and help them make my points so that they can feel like they're a part of it. The one, dis one, the one thing that makes happen, if you think about the last time you were at a meeting and you were, you were the third person or the fourth person to speak and you were sitting in that audience and you were watching those ladies and gentlemen speak, your head was in one direction and one direction only. It didn't turn to the right. It didn't turn to the left. So in a relatively short period of time, the neck gets stiff and it gets uncomfortable and you become distracted. Whereas if a, if a speaker will move, is animated, uh, the head moves back and forth, the audience follows them, the stiffness is not there. Have you ever tried that? Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll give you an an example of when I did try this, <clears throat> I was um, speaking at the University of California at Davis, and I was speaking, um, debating actually, a former CIA contract employee who had just said that all of our information was completely wrong. I mean, I don't know how, or how he came to that conclusion, but he went up first. Actually, we flipped the coin, and I won, and I said, okay, you go first. And he said, no, you should go first because of the fact that uh, you're uh, taking the affirmative. That's why it's an academic debate. I said, why would we flip the coin? You go first. So he went first, and he went up there. He dropped his glasses down on his nose, 
And then he read all of his notes. And while I was watching him there, I said, I'm going to do just the opposite. So I got up. I took my, my notes with me. I put them on the lectern. I took the microphone off, and I walked back and forth on the stage. And I actually walked into the audience, just as you said. And the feedback that I got from the kids at the university was, man, you just crushed that guy the way you delivered. They weren't talking that much about the, the information. It was just the delivery style. So we're, we're 100% in agreement on that. Well, can I jump in here? Um, it, it was in the, in the, uh, the Green Beret book uh, way back when, but I actually saw that at, uh, at Fort, um, I believe it was Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where they were training the Green Berets in the 60s. Uh -huh. And we came back from lunch, and there was this uh, instructor uh, cuddling this rabbit. And you know, after lunch, everybody is kind of uh, drowsy, etc. He was cuddling, uh, cuddling this rabbit, and we all looked at him on stage, and he sat there, there on the stage for about five minutes, and we all kind of settled in. And then he got up, took the rabbit by the ear, uh, used his hand and, and cracked, cracked the, uh, the, the rabbit's neck and then proceeded to un, uh, pull the skin off uh, of that Just rabbit. He said, now do I have your attention, gentlemen? And boy, <laughs> did he have our attention. And it was in a Green Beret book, but I've actually saw that at the Green Beret plant. Camp. I, I think it was Fort Bragg, but I won't. Uh... It is. It's Fort Bragg. That's where the special forces are trained. Okay. Uh, after a few of us upchucked, uh, we listened attentively as he talked survival technique. But uh, that, to me, is the way you attract audience and get the yeah, attention. No, that's that's a it's a great way. The special ops are uh, very special people. I had the. Uh, great privilege about three years ago of going down to Virginia Beach and doing a training program for a group of SEAL Team 6. Uh, the reason that they, they learned of my military and my speaking background and then State Department, I should say, and they wanted someone to come in and tell them just how to handle briefings to the State Department because they would frequently send in, in the advanced team an enlisted man, uh, a chief petty officer, and the State Department can be a little bit snobby, so they wanted to know how to handle that. But they, these were just fabulous guys, and what was really, really interesting, their talks, their presentations, practice presentations, had to be on the, uh, had to be unclassified, of course, because I no longer had clearances. But every one of them gave a talk about what it was like to raise a family, raise children when they were SEAL Team Six members. I mean, I was just so overwhelmed with their humanity and uh, how they were knowing what what great uh, military people they were but they were also very compassionate fathers uh, that that was uh, that was probably the most unforgettable workshop i've ever given was for seal team six have you watched the the, the seal team uh, program on wednesday night on cbs uh, no, no, I have that, not. That, no. that is exactly what it is. We have a friend who's uh, heads audio uh, audience uh, uh, for CBS, audience uh, relations, and he says it's uh, probably the number one show in for military uh, uh, people because it, it, it is exactly what you say. It talks about how their missions are one and how their uh, home life is the other. It's a fantastic yeah, yeah. Uh, if you get a chance, you should look at it. I think I it, will. I will. Sure. Uh, back to you, Dan. I want to go back to what you said something in the early, early on about that the number one fear of of the vast majority of Americans, and I would guess probably anybody else in the world, is standing in front of that audience. And uh, Don said he gets excited. I I get a little nervous after doing it thousands and thousands of times. Because I agree with Don, first and foremost, it's a show, and you're, an, you're both an entertainer and you're an educator. What do you say to people, uh, what do you say to our audience today that uh, can help them uh, be more effective in dealing with uh, that fear and anxiety of performing? Well, I've got a couple of examples in the book of what to do, but essentially my, my own experience is I, I tell them, look, 
don't do this. And a lot of a lot of my colleagues, competitors in the field, say, "Oh, you've got to do this to overwhelm and conquer the fear of speaking." And I say, "Forget it. You want to have that fear. You want to have that that adrenaline pumping into your system." And I give an example. I used this on on uh, James' program once before. One of the first presentations I gave after I retired from the Army, I was hired by a group, a commercial real estate convention in uh, Northern Virginia. And I gave it, and it went very well. They accepted my my methodology. And after it was over, the woman who had hired me was walking me out to the car, and she said, you know, you you must be extremely, extremely nervous when you give a presentation like this. And I'm figuring, what, what commercial real estate after the kind of audience I had? I said, no, well, what, what, just, what do you mean? And she said, well, we're commercial real estate people, and our job is to sell or lease buildings. If we do a poor job, that building retains its value. You, on the other hand, as a teacher of speaking, if you give a bad presentation, who's ever going to hire you to teach them to speak if you've done a bad job? So the pressure on you to give a good presentation is tremendous, and I never thought of that before. So after that, every time she said, I remember her key phrase said, you are the property. So every time after that, whenever I went out to speak, I would say to myself, you are the property. So I made myself nervous. I wanted to have that adrenaline pumping. And I think it's so wrong when people tell them, uh, tell their clients, so you don't want to be nervous. You want to overcome that fear of speaking. No, you want it and you want to do it. You want to control it and channelize that fear. And the idea that you're an educator, that that's a, that's a great way of looking at it, that you are putting into the minds of these people information that will help them do better in their own life and that, that's i think is the goal of any any speech coach should be to do that well can i ask you what's the toughest audience you ever had uh so there were so many when i was uh out out speaking i i think one of the uh most difficult was a group that uh and i'll say it, it was at the university of oregon they were very, very uh, tough. Uh, they were, and I was uh, one of the first speeches I gave on behalf of the State Department. And I, I think I simply was not prepared. I, I just expected I was going to go out and speak to a group of students and uh, do it. But the uh, the opposition was so so great that uh, when I came back, I, I sat down and said, "I'm never going to be in a situation like that again." So that's when I went through the procedures of doing a practice presentation, researching the people I'd be speaking so that I would be on top of it. But uh, the, there were there were a number like that, but that was the first, the worst one, and it was the first one. And I never had a bad experience like that again. <laughs> so therefore, I guess the model of that story is that you, uh, you, you make a mistake, uh, you do something that you're not at the level of competence you want to be, Practice, 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 and anticipate the problems. And for me, anticipation is the key word for any time you're making a presentation. Anticipate what the questions will be, what the audience is like, and how you can, uh, therefore, answer those questions to satisfy it. Did anybody ever ever tell you, imagine you, the, the, the audience is a bunch of naked butchers? Oh, that, that comes from Winston Churchill, and I figure he... You know, he had such a great sense of humor, and, and, and it was in one of, his, one of the books about him that he said um, that he imagined his audience was uh, half-naked sitting in there. And I figured it happened to be someone said, Sir Winston, what do you do to control your nervousness when you speak? And he gave that answer, and he was probably just pulling their leg. And then because it was Churchill who said it, they wrote it down and all that. <laughs> A lot of people say uh, that's what you should do. That I can't think of anything more distracting and keeping you all focused than that. <laughs> but uh, that, that there, there's some really dumb things that are out there. The other one is don't look at your audience, but look at a spot in the back of the wall. <laughs> what idiots said that bring no. up things oh. like that. No, you, you've got to make eye contact. If you don't make eye that's contact, right. uh, that's, that's the one that... Uh, but, you, you know, uh, I'm going to say it. I enjoy going out on the stage. I don't care who the audience is. To me, it's a, it's a fun time. And, look, we're on this program. We're nationwide. Uh, if something goes wrong, somebody, a lot of people are going to hear it.
but we're all three sitting here, four, if you count Jiggy, but he just sits there and laughs. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you, the, uh, the, the one thing I love about Larry Tracy is, uh, besides his books, he also uh, talks to us about current events. Um, Dan and Don uh, and, and me, we talk each and every week about some of the different current events. What, what do you make of this Iran situation, Larry? And then I'll let Dan and Don jump in and ask you some questions. But I want to know what you think of the uh, Iran situation. I, I didn't get that last part. There, the Dave. the that? Iran situation. Iran. What's going on in the Middle East, my friend? Well, I think when whenever you're um, dealing with an audience, and in fact, I have a chapter in the book on this, I think it's a social contract. And that, that I think, is the theme that has gone through all of our discussion today, that uh, as a speaker, you have an obligation to provide the most accurate information you can that will help this audience. Now, you could say that they also have an obligation to listen to you, but you don't have any control over that. But you can't get up there and just uh, go and speak and say, all right, I've, I've done my job. You've got to be reaching that audience, the eye contact, uh, reading the audience, who is with you, how are they reacting to you, are you getting your point across? And that, I think that's a moral obligation that anybody has when they're, when they're speaking, whether the audience... If the audience is uh, very opposed to you, fine. Uh, just accept that, and maybe you can get a, a few people to change their views and look into things more. But uh, to me, it's a very important thing to to uh, f- carry out that social contract and that moral obligation you have to when any time you're speaking to an audience. Let me uh, let me let me try again, Jim. Um, um, I want to ask a question, but I I, I want to. I want to go back to this, the original subject matter quickly, then I'll get on to, to current events. Um, I remember 43 years ago when I was doing an interview for a job on an AM radio station in Columbus, Ohio, and I had to record uh, a piece of material for the station manager. And it was the first time that I ever actually heard my voice played through a, a sound system. And I said to myself, I would never hire that person in my entire life because you were terrible. And I'm wondering, do you talk about, as part of your training, do you talk to people about recording themselves and playing back and listening to understand how other people hear them? Yeah, I do. That's a, an essential part of the training because everybody is shocked when they hear themselves for the first time on a tape recording or a television. And one mm-hmm. of the points that I bring out is that uh, when we, we, we speak, we are hearing ourselves through the uh, bony structure of the cranium. And it may be a little, to us, it may be a little bit more resonant and a little less nasal. Now I'm from Philadelphia and we Philadelphians do tend to speak with a bit of nasality in our, in our voice. Uh, so I tell people, you know, just don't, don't get shocked at that by the way you hear, because uh, people are going to be hearing you a little bit uh, different than you do, but they're so used to hearing different voices. Now, if you have a, uh, a real problem uh, with it, where you say extremely nasal or you speak with a monotone, and monotone is the biggest problem for men. Women, uh, they don't have the monotone. Uh, they tend to speak just with um, uh, less volume than is necessary and they can go a little bit higher on the scale. So my, my models for women in speaking, uh, one is, as James knows from previous talk, uh, the late Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick. Jean was my professor at Georgetown, was my close friend and colleague in the government, and she had just a marvelous voice, uh, deeper than most women. Another one would be the late Congresswoman, uh, my, um, uh, what was her name? from Texas. I, geez, I'm just blanking out now on her name. Barbara Jordan. But she was from Texas. Who was it? Barbara Jordan. Yeah, just that. Just that. And then the third would be um, uh, the, uh, the woman who was on PBS a lot and was a poet. Uh, the three women whose voices are lower than normal, and they're, they get along better. It's not that they're less feminine. But they can. And then for men, and, and for men and women, I recommend listen to the people on the news, on radio and on television, especially radio. 
like James, right? You've, you've, your whole being is your voice to get that across. On television, at least you can be looking at people uh, and you can see them, and that can be an impact. But uh, the voice of that, I, I just tell people, don't sweat it uh, on your voice if it sounds different because it's going to be acceptable to the, your audience. They're used to hearing people from different parts of the country. But if you have it, and the biggest problem with the voice is when people say, oh, and you know, and I have a special drill that I go through in my workshop to keep them from doing that to at least reduce it, if not eliminate it. And if you reduce your us and nos, you knows and other things like that, uh, you're, you're automatically a better speaker. So let's go back if, to Jim's question. Since you've been your retired military, Jim was asking the question: What do you, what's your perspective of what's happening? with Iran in the Middle East. What do you think is going well, there? Where is it leading? I'll tell you, that is, uh, yeah, that's what I didn't get before. Uh, I think this is very serious. I'm, le- I'm reading some of the things that even strong opponents to uh, President Trump, like Adam Schiff on the intelligence community, he has looked at the intelligence and said, this is serious. Mitt Romney, who doesn't want to do anything to help uh, Trump, has said, I've looked at it. This is a very serious step. It's almost it almost looks like we're back in the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis as far as the intelligence coming in there. I, I, I don't know what it is, of course, how it would be. And I think, I think it would be good to come out protecting sources and methods that we have and then let the American people know exactly what it is. My mentor in the speaking field when I was in the Defense Intelligence Agency was a man named John Hughes, and he had been one of those that discovered the missiles in Cuba back in '62. And he became a legend in the intelligence community after that. But it was when they went on, he went on television with the Secretary of Defense, McNamara, and showed the missiles. It was very clear. Do we have intelligence that is just as clear that we can show without giving up information? But here's what I would do, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a, a pretty hawkish view on this, and that is I think we should both publicly and through back channel to the Iranian government say, if you or your proxies do anything to hurt our forces or our allies, we are going to take out one of your refineries. You have seven refineries. They're all in our crosshairs. And let's not go to that point. Let's sit down and see how we can talk. But this being nickel and dime and sending a carrier battle group over there, that's a very expensive operation to do that. And we just can't keep on doing that. So I think there's got to be we may be at a critical point right now, and Trump is, the Iranians think Trump is crazy, and he may be, but that's good. Uh, a general that I knew used, used, used the term constructive ambiguity was a good thing to have, but they don't really know what you're going to do. Uh, so, but I, I think we are at a critical point, and I think the American people have to be told what it is. Right now, we're not hearing that, and uh, Congress is getting briefed today, uh, both the, uh, the House and the Senate. And I think it's about time that the president comes on national television and says, here is what it is, and here's what we will probably do in general terms. So that's my armchair strategist uh, view of it. So they're talking about there's been a, a number of s- stories which the president has denied, but there have been in the major media that there's a, an action plan to send a million troops to Iran. You don't well, need a million troops. <laughs> You don't need a million troops. You you won't do no. it that way. The, the important you, thing is the Iranians simply don't understand Trump. Uh, for that matter, most people don't understand Trump. But uh, uh, the fact is, uh, and I love, love your exp- uh, expression, ambiguity, the, the fact is that the Iranians simply cannot um, understand uh, what will... Uh, uh, goad Trump into action and what won't. Uh, the, uh, the Iranians have an inter- internal fight going on be- between some of, the, some of the leaders there who want to be more aggressive and some of the others who are beginning to realize that maybe uh, um, President Trump is not President Obama. Um, my own feeling is, and I agree, and I, I just talked to somebody yesterday in, from Washington who said the same thing that um, uh, the, the Iranians had, had an operation planned, and uh, Trump forestalled it, 
by uh, uh, calling their bluff beforehand, and that we will eventually hear what that um, uh, attempted coup or whatever it was will, will happen, and it was foiled by Trump simply acting. That's uh, that's what I heard out of Washington yesterday. Uh, well, are you saying, Don, that there that there was a, an attempted coup in Tehran, or no, no, no? The the Iranians were going to uh, do uh, as it was told to me an adventure in the Middle East, and uh, and Trump forestalled it um, by uh, uh, acting uh, as he did, which. Uh, uh, can totally confuse the Iranians. The Iranians are afraid that Trump will start a war, and a war that they can't win, because as uh, Larry just pointed out, there's uh, seven refineries. How long would it take our bombers to take out seven refineries? And what would have happen to the uh, Iranian economy after that? No matter what, what uh, it ended. Uh, think about. We don't it. even have to. We don't even have to send bombers to take out the refineries. Well, we uh, yeah. seven cruise bomb. missles. Well, it takes more than seven, but uh, and I've deferred to the military man who's with us. Um, uh, but but that my understanding was the Iranians had something planned, and uh, Trump forestalled it, and now they're all rattling the, the sabers. That's how I. Uh, that's how it was interpreted to me yesterday. Well, that's that. And there's the other thing, too. There's a lot of retired uh, military and intelligence people that are now saying Trump is making it worse because it's we're going to not be able to get uh, the people who are the moderates into power. Well, we're not getting the moderates into power in any way. No. The Ayatollahs have no. that pretty well controlled. And I, I misspoke. I said seven refineries. I looked it up yesterday. For some reason, I thought there were seven. There are actually 14. That's fine. That gives us more targets. And, and you're right, cruise missiles, uh, B-52s can do it. We, the firepower that we have with that Abraham Lincoln uh, carrier battle group is there is so incredible. And then we can surge over, more over there. But I and I, every retired military I know said, do not send troops. You're not going to. Somebody said about 120,000. That would be such a small amount. And that, that would have high casualties. You don't want ground casualties. We can do it. Oh with our firepower and they yes. just have to know that we're going to do it. And I, 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 well, I think they believe Trump is just crazy enough to do it. Fine. If they think that maybe they'll decide, all right, we've gone about as far as we can. One political point, one of the views that is coming out a lot on, on people on television, and I agree with this is the Iranians are hoping that Trump will be defeated in 2020 and they'll have maybe Biden coming back in. Then they go back to what they had with Obama and and Biden before, uh, so that's a long time. They they may not be able to last that long. The economic power that is against them right now. So well, I, I, I say, go back to that. Stick out right. very very heavy targets. Do not go back with a proportional response, which is our no. normal way. No, Trump no. has hinted at that. He said it'll be a heavy attack. Yes, yes. But if you're going to go in, uh, you, he, whatever he does, he's going to be damned. I mean, it, it, global warming is Trump's uh, fault. Everything is Trump's fault. So you might as well go in there and do do heavy damage and uh, take the consequences. It's going to be the same. Uh, uh, I, I, I really feel, but the main point is the Iranians simply do not understand uh, President Trump. And, and that's, uh, that's what I'm hearing. And I'm sure you've got better sources than I do, but that... Uh, Everybody that I've talked to said the problem with the Iranians is they don't understand Trump. Yep. <laughs> like a lot of people in the United States don't understand Trump. Well, but see, I, I, I think, yeah. uh, you know, I a lot keep... of people thought Ronald Reagan, remember, he was going to be the crazy cowboy. That was good that they thought that. And uh, we wind up with the uh, the wall coming down and uh, a different kind of world after that. Because he just was not going to accept that from the Soviet Union. Can I, I think just what we're you, you first. No, you first, Dan. I just think that what's going on is that that we are seeing in China the re the realization that, as Don has said, 
the Iranians don't understand Donald Trump. I don't think the Chinese believe Donald Trump when he says what he's going to says what he's doing. And so when they quickly put it on the sixty billion dollars uh, of goods on the tariff, that they're not being logical. They're they're the over the weekend the negotiators were quoted in the Chinese papers saying. They don't understand why he hasn't made concessions, because we've made all the concessions in trade forever. Uh, I think that there's a the broader issue here is that there's a lot of people, in general, in leadership positions around the world, who do not understand that there's a new sheriff, and he's a global sheriff, and his name is Donald Trump, and they're yeah. still thinking. When you said they were thinking about when they're holding on to see if. Donald Trump does get doesn't get reelected, and maybe they'll have um, Biden and back to Obama. That was the risk that Hillary, they, the supporters for Hillary, were taking. Hillary gets elected, everything's yeah, right. fine. She didn't, and so to make that assumption in the face of economic data that we have in this country today, that Joe Biden is going to convince the world that he's the right guy, uh, what are they going to do on that election night in November of 2020, when? Donald Trump was reelected, and maybe there's a new Republican House. So, but they, they can't seem to think that. Very well be. And so that the countries that are on the countries that are, excuse me, but the countries who are waiting for the American election may be gravely disappointed. Well, they were surprised in 2016, and if history of presidential elections or anything, any routine you're going to see the economy is going to be the main area that is going to uh, determine the next election. And most economic predictions, and Don, you know this a lot better than I, but most of the economic models right now say no recession until maybe 2022. So uh, there, if people are counting on, on a recession to bring in another party, I don't think that'll happen. I just wish, I really wish that Trump would occasionally act a little more presidential to give <laughs> We who support him an excuse on it. Because I'm always the argument. I, I just gave a talk in our, our condo on politics, and someone said, how can you support a person like this? I said, I don't like him. I wouldn't want him in my home, but I want him running the country because of what he's done so far. And that, that's kind of difficult for people to understand. And if we can't understand him in the United States, just think how people in Iran and, and China and other countries have difficulty understanding him, especially after they had eight years of Obama. Um, in, in Dan's favorite paper, the New York Times, um, yet, uh, on Sunday was a very interesting article in, uh, in which uh, the question was, where was the black vote going to go? Uh, they have power. But they, but uh, they're finally in the New York Times of all places was a story about the fact that that the prom, that the blacks have not really gotten any of the promises that the Demo Democratic Party has given given them over the years. Yet uh, here, buried at the very bottom of the article, was the point that uh, black employment w was at the highest level uh, in, in over 50 years, uh, and That's black right. un unemployment. Um, uh, anyway, could I just jump a totally different subject, because I'd like to ask uh, a totally different... Bernie Sanders said on Sunday that he was against charter schools. And I, um, I, I, I know... The, the military has done a great job of educating um, many of the people that have come out of um, uh, high schools in this country not able to read and write. And, and uh, uh, what people fail to realize uh, uh, is the, the tremendous job the armed forces have done in uh, uh, teaching uh, remedial. Do you want to comment on that at all, Larry? Well, uh, the military has that, that for years. We've had people come in, especially when we had a draft that goes long back. But right now, it's also the military has become a, an institution of what we call vertical mobility because people come in, as you say, very, very poorly educated. And in today's military, 
you can't be a dummy. Uh, it is such a technologically advanced military that the uh, PFC is going to have to be able to handle some very, very intricate and complex equipment, and they have to have the basics of writing and reading and uh, that to do it. So, yeah, the military has been a, a great institution for that. And then when they come out, they also – the other thing that the military has always been very good at, it, it has been very much of a – I guess we could call it a social incubator where blacks and whites and Hispanics work together. And that, that has been one of the great things. And I've seen that in the military back before I got into intelligence when I was in infantry, how they could, could work together. And I remember when I was a company commander, basic training company commander at uh, Fort Ord when I existed, uh, we, would, we would take the people who came in who had uh, very good education. We had a lot from the California area. And in order to get them to work, we would set up, I would set up little tutorial sessions for them to be helping the people without the, the Chicanos coming from, from uh, Los Angeles area, how to be able to read English better. And they did that. They, they felt they were contributing. So, uh, yeah, I didn't hear that Sanders said that, but there's very, very little that Sanders said that I would agree with anyway. And um, I hope he's the candidate <laughs> that that uh, do it. But, but uh, the military has been, and I, I think that can continue to do that. Although you got to remember the military's main objective objection is to kill people and break things. That, that's what we do best. And the other things are, are a side hustle that we could have. Hey, Jim. Yes. Yes, Dan. Do I have, do we have time that I could ask Don one question? Yes. Jump in there. Jump in there. And then... uh, Don, I, I would, I would really like your perspective on why after Joe Biden got into the race, why? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.